welcome to Perspectives. Perspectives is a series of inspiring conversations with remarkable working women who are leading busy and successful lives, even or if not even especially in this crazy time. And it's my pleasure today to be talking to Quinn Mai. Quinn, welcome. Hi, Katie. So great to speak to you from from Shelter Island to Florida. (laughs) Yes, from Shelter Island to Miami Beach, two very different water scenarios. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, But the water is calming um, always in, in times of strife. It really is. It really is. So we're both uh, we're both on an island. <laughs> well, let's let's jump right in. I mean, you have had such a remarkable and interesting career working for Annie Leibovitz, starting a tech company, working in advertising and branding with Burberry and David Yurman. And can you give us a little bit of your career and then how you got to founding your firm, Moving Image and Content? Yeah, I think that my my entire career has been driven by curiosity and bliss ignorance. <laughs> you know, um, one curiosity in that I always wanted to see what was next, what was around the corner, what was new. I was continually, constantly bored as I was young. I would always complain to my parents, "I'm so bored," and I really meant it. <laughs> and I think I said that you know throughout my youth into college. Um, so, so being, you know, curious and, and somewhat bored all the time forced me to constantly change and to discover new things and just blissfully ignorant. When you don't know what you can't do, you don't know that there are um, glass ceilings or doors that you can't enter. So when you are a little bit um, blissfully ignorant, as I call it, you go into the rooms, you get into situations that you probably have no reason to be in, um, but you fake it till you make it. And eventually you do. And you did with your company now. Can you talk a little bit uh, about your firm and founding it and what you do? Yeah, I founded Moving Image and Content um, right after the last recession. In 2009, I started cooking up plans for the idea. And really, it was because I was tired of being an employee. I really realized that as much as I you know, loved my boss at the time, David Lipman, he had this fantastic agency I didn't like being told what to do constantly. And I started to see that, you know, our visions didn't line up. I really wanted to go digital. You know, I had that in my blood. I had grown up in Silicon Valley. I felt that that was the future, but it was hard to be in a large organization where print was still, you know, 95% of the billings. And I'm sure it was very hard for a business owner like himself to pivot towards digital when that was just the, the wild west. And you didn't know if you could even make money or if that's where things were going. So, and, you know, there, it was a real fork in the road that made me decide to create my own company, which was one, do I, want it, do I want to keep working for somebody else and being told what to do all the time, which the answer was no. Two, I was young enough and I was in my 30s at that time. And I felt that if I didn't do this now, when would I ever do it? It's much harder to start, you know, a business in your 40s or 50s because the risk is so great once you had kids. And I didn't have kids at that time. Um, and lastly, I just really felt that digital was was where things were going. And I have to say, you know, we're here in 2020, and I officially started my company in 2010, and we're still not there yet. You know, as as an industry, you know, in terms of advertising and marketing, we're still just scratching the surface when it comes to digital. Do you think now, with everything that's going on in the world and people relying more heavily on digital in so many ways, that that's going to change? 
Absolutely. I think that um, most of the business leaders and decision makers in large companies and corporations were a lot older and they weren't living in digital the same way that their kids or grandkids might were, might have, have done. So though they looked at you know digital from an intellectual perspective, they didn't actually experience digital in their day-to-day lives. What the lockdown did was um, being in quarantine, these leaders, these executive leaders, CEOs, CMOs, chairmen had to live on digital and they realized how compelling and easy it was. And so their personal minds were changed because they had a personal experience to start relating to it. You know, once your, you know, Gen Z teen daughter or son forces you to do a TikTok video, (laughs) well, (laughs) all of a sudden as a 50 or 60 year old, you know, executive, you start really understanding the draw of digital much more. And it wasn't um, as conceptual to you. So I think that it's changing really for that reason. It's not really that, oh, all of a sudden people woke up. I think it's more visceral and personal than that, which is light bulbs went off and said, oh, I get it now. I know why this is so important. I experience now in a different way as a consumer and not just an executive who intellectually looked at it, but one, you know, an, an executive who was actual participant. So I think the, the change is coming more for that reason than for the fact that everyone was using it because everyone was using it before. You know, the, the numbers were clear that, you know, consumers were really abandoning traditional TV, abandoning print, you know, not looking at billboards anymore because they were on their iPhones walking down the street. All the data was there pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. It's just nobody in the seat of power wanted to make that change because they didn't understand it. Um, and and what, what lockdown did was it created that personal uh, relationship towards digital that really is going to create the change um, in business today. Another thing, I mean, I think everything you're saying makes makes so much sense. In terms of being a business owner and this very unprecedented, to say the least, period of time when it when it comes to this pandemic, how has it affected your business and the way you work? I think that um, the crisis for me personally as a company was more of you know the the stages almost like the stages of grief. You know, first it was absolute fear and terror. Then it was survival. <laughs> and then now we're in this moment of building back up and, and trying to thrive. So I think every business owner, um, big or small, has to cope with the question of, should I exist? Should my company exist in this time and place? What am I doing? You know, what am I doing to myself and my family? Should my company exist? Is it is it really benefiting the world? And I think that's the the, the existential crisis that so many business owners have gone through, um, small business owners for sure, because, you know, um, putting their, their family through startup mode again, you know, because everyone sort of like went back to zero, unless you were, you know, one of the lucky few, you know, either building bicycles, mm-hmm. you know, where your, where your, um, your business was, you know, on fire, you know, most businesses really suffered. So the big question was, should I exist? You know, what, what am I doing to build, you know, businesses to help community, to help people? Am I really, um, you know, contributing to society and contributing to businesses that then therefore contribute to society? So I think that becomes really important um, for all business owners. And then I think because of the crisis, um, you know, the the sense of empathy that we felt for the first time in so many years, I, I don't think that there was a 
tremendous amount of empathy in 2008 during the crash because a lot of people felt like it was it was quote their fault. The banks they made a mistake. It was their fault. We were not empathetic to big banks whatsoever, but we weren't even empathetic to the people who took on multiple mortgages because what we said is, well, it was your fault. You stretched your credit line. You know, it was your fault that you you know um, had to go bankrupt or or whatever because you know you weren't responsible. But I think what happened here was nobody was responsible. Nobody. It was, nobody's fault that COVID happened. So as a society, we had this incredible amount of empathy for the first time towards everyone because nobody, nobody was at fault here. And then when Black Lives Matter came around, that empathy was really easily moved towards the, the Black Lives Matter movement because we were so, um, you know, as a society, we were so, you know, scared and alone and fearful of our own existence that when we saw um, George Floyd, you know, the eight, eight minutes, 46 seconds, we really felt it because we were in such a place of vulnerability. And I think because of that, we all have this incredible sense of empathy that we need to ride into the future because we do understand at this point that it's, it's not a zero sum game. You know, me succeeding as a business, big or small, does not mean that you have to fail um, because if we crush you know, all of our competitors and we crush our consumers, who's there to buy things from us anymore? <laughs> you know, if, if everyone's hurting, who's going to be the consumer? There are so many things <laughs> there that I want to touch on. I think you're you're right on so many different ways. And I think in terms of a business, pairing yourself back and saying, should I exist? And what is it that we really do? is such it's it's so important for businesses to do that anyway and really it's so important for people yeah to do not the should i exist part but when you're looking at your career and maybe looking to make a change or being forced to make a change right now paring it down and saying what is it that i do what am i good at and what do i like to do and what do i do that's valuable um is it's such a good time to do that. Absolutely. I think you're right. You know, we we faced our own mortality as a society in unison. You know, we, though I wasn't afraid of dying, you know, I, I, I felt that I was healthy enough to to pass COVID. You know, none of us were really sure. So in those dark days, especially in New York, where I live in March, when you saw the the pop-up hospitals and the the ice trucks full of full of, you know, dead bodies you really face mortality and that created this sort of existential crisis of personal and professional. Why am I here? What am I doing? Is this, you know, beyond a paycheck? Um, you know, do I want to really do this? And, and you see this a lot with um, people who were given, um, you know, uh, who, who were terribly sick, you know, people who have cancer or people have, um, you know, sort of a, a terrible debilitating illness what you see from a lot of them that's really interesting is this new lease on life, this new clarity of what is what is life going to be after this from a personal perspective. And I think we're looking at that now from a personal and a professional perspective. You know, what what is my meaning? Um, and look, you know, I don't think everyone's on that same boat. You know, obviously there, there are a lot of corporations where it's business as usual or actually business is growing. And let's take a, take a part of this opportunity. But even Amazon, the most you know, the biggest brand, the most powerful brand in the world is also 
um, this David and Goliath moment happens with just their workers speaking out on COVID and not feeling protected. And that, you know, that David and Goliath story is, is happening all over the world where individuals have such power to call out um, their corporations for mishandling, you know, their, their health or their well-being. Um, you know, people are, are starting to realize that the way they treat employees is, is no longer uh, acceptable because, you know, social media and digital is shining such a bright light on every indiscretion that you really can't act that way anymore because consumers are now, you know, voting with their wallets and saying, I won't buy you anymore. Um, and that, and that's become, you know, really critical for brands and for people to really do well, not only for themselves, but, but for others. Yeah. And, and it should be noted also that, you know, people that are, that are standing up in companies like Amazon are risking their jobs to do that. And when I say, um, people can take this time and figure out, you know, what do they stand for and what do they want to do? I also realize that's a kind of luxurious stance to be in because for many people, they're just figuring out how to make enough money to keep themselves and their families going. Absolutely. So, you know, it is definitely a balance of all those things. Um, but it is an interesting time to be thinking about your priorities and what's important to you and what maybe isn't important to you anymore. And what success means for you, which is really what Perspectives is about. You know, I think the lens of success has definitely changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of um, business owners fell into this trap, and I certainly did, of it's always about growing, getting bigger. Bigger is better. And what we've seen is that that's not always the case that, you know, when you, when you speak to a lot of entrepreneurs, they always say, oh, it was the beginning that was so exciting. It was the beginning when we were innovative and fast and nimble, and we created so much change and so much happened as, at, you know, at the pace. So of course, you know, market share, revenues, all those things are really important. But I think coupled with the power of digital and how efficient you can be, um, but still be kind and to give back and, and create this society of, of, of reciprocity. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who are out there who are just thinking, how do I find my next job? How do, how do I survive? How might, how does my family survive? But they, you know, it's, it's really incredible to see those people, you know, banging on the window when the polls close early in Kentucky um, or Louisiana and they're shut out, or you see those people taking time out to be a part of a march, or you take see those people who are just saying, you know, at the grocery store, saying, mm, I'm not going to buy this brand because I don't think their values align with mine, or I'm going to buy this brand instead because their values align with mine. So, you know, you know, not not that not that we expect that every single person has a luxury and the. Um, and the time to be, you know, an you know an advocate for change, but change in such a small way. You know, today is Blackout Tuesday, and today um, I'm not going to buy anything today. <laughs> I'm not going to purchase anything. I'm not going to go uh, buy anything at a store. And I don't know how many people are actually doing it. You know, along with mm -hmm. me. You know, it's a it's a social media campaign, but the power of just not spending is you know, a protest in itself. So I do think that it's, it's incredible that no matter where you are in the spectrum, 
you can do your little part to create change. And because social media amplifies things to such a huge degree, your little act can actually be quite huge. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, and that's most certainly on my list of things I want to talk with you about. I think you particularly in several ways, have a very interesting perspective on this, both by being an immigrant and by having two sons, um, one who's Chinese and one is Black. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about sort of how you're talking with them about Black Lives Matter? With great difficulty. (laughs) Um, Black Lives Matter is so important to us because my son is 14 years old a beautiful young black man, very dark skinned. Um, you know, my son's from Ethiopia. We adopted him when he was three and he's five foot nine, (laughs) taller than me. And so I see on the streets how he is responded to when he was a small kid, he was so cute and adorable at three when he's five, when he's 10. But when he started getting tall, I saw people see him as a young man, even though he was just a teen, right? 13 is not a young man. 13 is gawky and weird and uncomfortable. Um, But I see people looking at him in such a different way. And I always had to fear as every, you know, mother of a black child fears for his safety and well-being, even though we live in Brooklyn, New York, a very diverse um, community, I would not buy him any clothes that were black. I don't buy him any dark colored clothes. I don't let him wear hoodies when he's out by himself. Mm -hmm. So it's all these little tiny things that you have to think about that are, you know, that a black child or a black mom has to think about that other moms don't have to think about. You know, I can't, I have to be so careful. If he is on the playground wrestling with his Chinese brother Nobody understands that they're just playing around and they're siblings. People think, oh my God, look at that black kid menacing, beating up that, that Asian kid. So I have to see things through such a different set of lenses and in such a defensive mode all the time as, as, as most um, you know, mothers of black children have to see, they have to see the world through a different lens, which is totally unfair, bigoted, racist, and cruel to these children but it's the way that the world works. So when Black Lives Matter happened, I really rejoiced. I thought, oh my God, finally, people can understand the way we feel when we put our children out there and we fear for their lives every single day. Um, So, but Black Lives Matter also made me think about myself as a company to say, okay, how many Black employees do I have? How um, How many Black employees can I help? Because it becomes such a, a, you know, racial injustice and bias is so subtle and it's so ingrained that I think all of us do it. And I think people of color do it to themselves. You know, I think a lot of racism happens between um, communities, you know, between Asians and Blacks, between Latinos and Asians, you know, know, so it really is the degrees of racial bias. Um, And I think we all have it, you know, no matter who we are. Um, because it's been so ingrained in society. So we all have to work on dismantling it, you know, first within ourselves, then within our communities, in our companies, our corporations, then our government. It's a long road ahead. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. It's a very long road. And even people, 
even people that want to be, you know, I think of myself as a very liberal person and taking, looking through this lens of, or looking through this Black Lives Matter lens that we're all learning a lot about, even people like me who think they've been doing a good job, when I really look at it, even when I look at who I've been interviewing for perspectives, mm-hmm. you know, I think, oh, oh, well, I have a pretty good cross section of people. And when I really look, it isn't where I want it to be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the same as being a small business owner. We're all, we're all women, but we're all white women. Mm-hmm. We had a guy for a while, but <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You know, I, I, I hear you, Katie. I think that we right now, um, we're going through a painful period where I think so many people who are hurt and angry um are voicing their their frustration. And what we have to do right now, you know, as as a community is just listen and empathize and and make the determination personally of how, how can we in our small way make a change? You know, it's very much like climate change. You know, oh, if I don't recycle this bottle, what's that going to do? Well, how many bottles do you use a year? (laughs) You know, how many bottles does your family use a year? So it doesn't, it feels, it feels so small, you know, your, your one act to your point, Katie, of like, okay, maybe you're entire, you're going to really think about her or him very differently. Um, maybe the next person that you hire as a freelancer, you're going to think about that differently. So it's it's an incremental change, but incremental change with you times millions is a is a tidal wave of change. Um, but I think what what's troubling for me right now is that it becomes it's becoming a zero sum game. Are you in or are you out? Are you all the way into Black Lives Matter or are you or are you an enemy? And I think that's really disruptive and really harmful because I think for for us as a society and as a world to create change, we have to bra- embrace every single person who has the right intention. And maybe they're not 100% there yet, but their intention is to move forward. So, you know, when we out, you know, um, liberal women because they haven't, they haven't gotten there yet, or we out corporations or um, you know, small businesses or business owners, we're really creating fear from people doing the wrong thing. And we're shutting out this idea of intention and incremental change. So I think that, you know, I can say this as a mother of a black child is that I welcome anyone who even has the intention and intends to create incremental change in their lives and their businesses, because it all adds up. And even if, you know, you know, you or anyone, you know, as a, a white or a Latino or Asian liberal person isn't 100% on board with Black Lives Matter, as long as you commit to the change and have the intention, I, I welcome you to help my son, you know, who's Black, and, you know, welcome him into the fold. And anything that you or anyone else does that's just incremental is going to help him and all the other young Black men out there who now are, are seen differently. And it was funny, I a friend of mine who's this very um, affluent, successful um, gay man said to me, oh, I find black men so sexy right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed. I said, that is the result of Black Lives Matter, you know, because you're seeing young men as strong and powerful and sexy. And I said, right on. 
I said, you know, that I'll take that. I would like my son to be seen as sexy, not dangerous or scary or omnibus. Let him be sexy and strong, you know, bring it on. Um, and so, you know, every, everything counts, every, every turn of the screw, every, every little bit counts. Um, so we shouldn't judge anyone for, you know, the, the smallest, uh, smallest move towards positivity. That's an excellent point. I mean, and awareness is so important and awareness of having to change the way you think and making this an important issue the same way that, you know, Me Too came to the forefront and made a lot of positive changes. Um, this will do that too. We all have to hope. Absolutely. I love that you brought up Me Too because I think what Me Too brought was like, you know, I stand with her, you know, whatever the situation, you know, maybe she doesn't remember it was so long ago. Maybe she was drunk. Maybe whatever it was, I, I stand by her. And what I would love to see happening with Black Lives Matter is I stand with you. You're not perfect. You you maybe don't have, to your point, Katie, you know, you don't have diversity in your own business right now, but you're... I can, I know by talking to you that you have the intention to bring it there. So I stand by you. Maybe you're not there yet, but I stand by your intention. So I think if we start, you know, opening ourselves up more and, and move away from anger and hurt, which is really, you know, fair and, and valid, we need to move away from that in time and move towards progress and change. And the only way that we can do that is to stand by each other and say, hey, you're not perfect, but just like I love my children or my family, and they're certainly not perfect, I have to love business owners and brands and corporations. Um, And we have to start loving our government too. You know, even if it's not perfect, we have to, you know, definitely during these last few years, I I miss loving my government. I, I miss the Obama years where I felt oh, he's not perfect. There's a lot of things I didn't like about Obama, but wow, I really, for the most part, I'm, I'm satisfied with what's going on and we need to get to that place again, um, you know, across all sectors. Oh, we certainly do. And that is like a whole other episode or perhaps a series. <laughs> but, Absolutely. But just to, um, I agree with you there. And just to sort of bring this to a close, um, I'd love to just ask you, is there a piece of advice that has helped guide you in your life and your career that you can share with us? The biggest thing I've learned, and, and especially recently, is um, first, forgive yourself. You know, when you, as, you know, as women, as business owners, as mothers, as, you know, even if you're not a mother, you are mothering your, often your community, whether it's your extended family. Um, we hold ourselves to such incredibly high standards. And we have to first forgive ourselves um, in order to forgive others. So I think that, you know, something I've really learned is maybe I didn't hit my numbers this year. Maybe I didn't get the recognition I thought I deserved for XYZ. Or maybe I didn't get... I didn't land that campaign or that, that pitch that I really, really wanted. And I would spend so much time, you know, turning in my head, oh, if I had done this, I had done that. And I would always say to myself, constructive criticism is really fantastic. It, it's how, how you learn and grow. But I think there's a really fine line between constructive criticism and sort of 
you know, blaming yourself. Oh, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done that. And I think what happens is that, you know, you know, I think as women, we do this so much more where we don't forgive ourselves for mistakes or um, things that we didn't do. And so we then are less bold. I definitely look at a lot of my um, peers who started companies around the same time, you know, that are men. And I see, gosh, when they make a mistake, they just roll right over it and they keep going and they're just so ballsy and they're so, no pun intended, <laughs> they're, so, they're so bold in, you know, even their mistakes, you know, they're so bold in saying, declaring, I'm sorry, I'll do better. Goodbye. I'll keep going. And I think that that's something that, you know, I've learned a lot and I would hope the listeners today, you know, forgive yourself and just move on, move on quick. You know, we teach that to our children. If they make a mistake, learn, but move on. Don't hold yourself so accountable that you can't move on. And because you start silencing yourself, you start muting yourself, you start self-censoring yourself. And then to your back to your point about living, you know, your best life, which is what, you know, quarantine has taught us, you know, you're not living your best life if you're, if you're silencing yourself and, and self-forgiveness is, is so critical for, so that everything else can happen. So true. Well, Quinn, it was wonderful talking with you. I think we definitely need to talk to do another one and finish up on all these things. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It really was a pleasure. Hopefully next time we'll be doing it in person over a glass of wine. Excellent. <laughs> Sounds Absolutely. like a plan. Take care. 